We are going to energize the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be once again joined by Chris Clark, uh, who we spoke to earlier in the year about his book, Warring Fictions, which has just been uh, recently released in a new edition uh, from Penguin Books. It's released on Tuesday as The Dark Knight and The Puppet Master. Welcome back to the podcast, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Will. Um, so the first question that I'd like to ask for those people who didn't listen to the um, previous discussion, which we had, though obviously they definitely should have done, is um, what prompted you um, to write this book? Uh, well, the book was, it was actually quite a long time. Um, and as you say, it was originally out as worrying fictions and it was quite a long time in the, the making. But I think the, the, it, it first sort of came into my mind quite early in the Corbyn days, you know, mm. uh, late 2015, early 2016 kind of time, because there was obviously a lot of um, disputes between these two wings of the Labour Party. Uh, and what I was really struck by in a lot of the conversations I was having with people who were more sympathetic to Corbyn than I was, mm. but also by the, the debates I was seeing on uh, on TV, the debates I was seeing on social media, was that there was a real kind of, a, a lot of non-secretaires and and um, miss, arguments missing each other and a real sense of where do we actually disagree here. Um, the kind of conventional reading was that the far left were very radical and left-wing and the centre-left were much more kind of um, moderate and much more diluted progressive views but I didn't really feel that that was where it was coming from it seemed to me that um, on the Corbynite left there was uh, a whole different set a whole different analysis of society really uh, and one which I couldn't particularly get on board with um, ranging from you know some of the conspiratorial ways of seeing the world through to some kind of very ultra partisan views uh, so I really was wrote the book because I wanted to look at this question of where the differences lay and to make a different sort of argument, um, a different sort of critique of, of uh, the far left and the Corbynite left, which, which said um, this, is, uh, this is about something different. This is really about approach to politics far more than being about what you think the top rate of tax should be mm. for the sake of argument. Um, now, as I mentioned, uh, the title of the book is The Dark Knight and the Puppet Master, and that's two of the um, three central uh, myths that you, you deal with in the book. Um, just starting with uh, The Dark Knight, for, for those who don't know what that refers to, what does that refer to? Yeah, the, um, so the, 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 in the book I focus on these three myths, which my, my view is that they, they kind of define what I call populist left thinking mm. uh, and the kind of certainly the thinking of the, the kind of Corbynite hard hardcore and the, um, uh, the 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 three myths are the Dark Knight the Puppet Master and the Golden Era um, and the Dark Knight is is the first of them and it's knight as in knight spelt with a K so dark <laughs> it, it describes a kind of um, an immoral enemy it is and it's about really a politics which is um boils everything down to uh, good versus evil or boils everything down to kind of uh, spiteful and self-interested right-wingers versus mm -hmm. virtuous 
um, and uh, altruistic left-wingers. Uh, and what it leads to as an idea is to uh, a kind of politics based on class war, on the you know, kind of relics of the Cold War, on hmm. the modern culture war. It, is, it, it leads to um, polarisation, to a kind of real us-against-them mentality, which is not only often leads into all sorts of dangerous kind of wormholes uh, and, and cul-de-sacs, but which is also um, completely counterproductive because if your way of seeing politics is about saying the political spectrum is a moral spectrum, the other side are the bad guys, um, it's very hard to persuade them to, to vote for you, especially if you're already in a minority um, in Parliament. So, so yeah, that, that explains the myth in a nutshell and it's, it kind of straddles everything from the sort of um, slightly sanctimonious attitudes that some people on the left might have towards people on the right you know, the kind of uh, Tories are lower than vermin um, mug <laughs> sitting on the shelf yeah. right through to the kind of um, ultra-partisan readings of um, uh, the, the Middle East or the kind of instinctive support for Russian policies, on the for, for sympathy for Russia on the basis that they're kind of ultimately the good guys. Hmm. Um, and of course, the Dark Knight, um, as you mentioned in the book, also in uh, he's, he's involved in internal struggles as well when you will see people in the Labour Party who will, you know, uh, see other members of the Labour Party, including uh, MPs, as, as being, you know, uh, right-wingers and, you know, against the um, the moral and uh, upright uh, instincts of, of the people that they support. Do you think that um, the way that um, the Dark Knight is viewed internally differs at all to the way that it is um viewed externally you mean within the labor party mm -hmm. is it yeah is it uh um i, I think within the it, within labor politics i think it essentially follows the same dynamic which is mm. that it always it always follows the idea that the political spectrum is moral and the the, the far end of the sp political spectrum is um the kind of the enemy, the yeah. bad guy, the person who's manipulated by who's manipulated, who's mo motivated by nothing but kind of callous self-interest. Um, and then once you have that spectrum, if somebody is a little bit closer to that bad guy, mm. the kind of the the sort of um, uh, the, the the blood drinking Tory at the yeah. other end of the spectrum, <laughs> then you can you can sort of legitimately conclude that. That they're kind of immoral themselves. So what what happens is as soon as as soon as a sort of um, line gets drawn across the political spectrum within the Labour Party, and one person finds themselves, I don't know, supporting um, some Trident. element of yeah, supporting Trident. That's a very good example. Um, you can legitimately conclude well, they're closer to the bad guy than we are. Hmm. They're they're a traitor or a coward to to quote the the, the lines from the the Red Flag. <laughs> they're they're a kind of um, somebody who at best believes in nothing and at worst is is one of them. So that's, I think, where the, the real core difference comes from is if once you go into this, once you go into this idea that the politics of the left is innately moral, then the further someone strays from that towards the centre, you don't just say, oh, they're, they've got a different view. They, they think there's a bit more space for private sector involvement within the country's organised. You think mm. they're one of them. And that, I think, is the nub of where uh, the history of the, the left splitting 
um, comes from is because it so invests what it believes in with being moral. Mm. Um, now, the other myth uh, that you refer to in the title is the puppet master. Now, some uh, people may have heard that um, term, but may not uh, fully understand it. What, what do you mean by that particular term? Yeah, so the, the puppet master is the second of my three myths. Um, and it's uh, it's basically the idea that the problems of society um, come almost without exception from above and are created by um, a small, powerful group at the top of society. Uh, so at, in its worst form, it kind of leads to absolute all-out conspiracy theories, you know, mm. the, the idea that 9-11 happens with the, the blessing of George Bush. Mm. Um, but it takes much milder forms as well. Uh, it, could, it, it may just be a kind of cynicism about the idea that the the MSM, the mainstream media, are, are colluding to silence Labour. Mm. It may be... Um, the idea that even just the kind of slightly oppositionist idea that problems are easy to solve in government and that government has this kind of real limitless power which it chooses to use to its own ends. Um, but essentially, unlike the Dark Knight myth, which is about morality, the, the puppet master myth is more about this idea of power in society and this idea that a kind of very small Number, number of individual interests, quotes unquote, mm. with agendas, quotes unquote, mm. are sort of controlling the rest of us, be it through brainwashing or coercion. And, and like I say, it's got, it's the sort of thin ends of the conspiracy theorist wedge, if you like. Um, uh, and it's, it tends to use the language of global elites, of elites in government, of the, sometimes the Westminster bubble, but always with this idea not just that elites exist because there are people who you know, are very privileged to mm. with a silver spoon, but the idea that these elites are working together to manage democracy so that they can um, extract what they want from it. And of course, um, the puppet master is also uh, has been, as, as you mentioned, um, conspiratorial conspiracy theories has been associated very much with anti-Semitism uh, within the Labour Party. And over the um, past couple of weeks, we have seen uh, the EHRC, the Equality and Human Rights Commission's report, come out um, dealing with anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And of course, Jeremy Corbyn's um, response to that has led him to be suspended from the Labour Party. Do you think that the puppet master necessarily um, falls in and, and, and has to be um Anti-Semitic, or do you think that there are people out there who use this particular conspiracy theory who who aren't necessarily anti-Semitic, or do you think it's more complex than that? Uh, I think that's a really good question, um, and I think it's a hard one because obviously the implication. Um, I, I, I'm not saying that everybody who thinks that, you know that the BBC are biased against the mm. the Labour Party or that kind of thing is automatically an anti, anti-Semite. Um, but the problem with the puppet master myth, if you if you believe that there's this kind of shady group of interests from the media, finance, politics, the judiciary, all sort of working together to, to get what they want out of society, automatically you, you have to ask who that group are, that they would behave in that extremely, um, extremely cynical way and that they would be competent enough to to do that, you know, almost kind of inhumanly self-interested and callous mm. and um, and superhumanly 
skillful that they could could do all this stuff without the rest of us noticing. And once you um, and I don't I don't know anyone like that in my life who's mm. you know unbelievably callous and unbelievably competent. Um, and you ha- once you once once you've gone down that avenue, I think it's quite easy for the myth to um, to jump the tracks basically into what's sometimes known as the um, the socialism of fools, mm. uh, anti-Semitism, which is that the idea that um, you know you've got this ready-made group of inhuman superhumans, mm. this this kind of um, minority who tend to often in some societies be, be relatively economically successful, mm. um, who can be blamed for those problems. So uh, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say I would say it's a sort of um, the puppet master myth. By believing in it, or by believing in softer variants of it, people don't aren't necessarily anti-Semitic. Mm. But I think um, I think it's it has the potential to be a sort of a gateway drug. Once you believe, once you believe that the the media are stitching things up for Labour and that the the polls have been kind of manufactured to um, to to suit a conservative agenda, then you. After it's much much easier for you to to go the whole hog into conspiracy theories about the, the Rothschilds and and whatever else. Mm. And uh, I mean, you use the um, example in uh, the book of uh, George Harrison, and you use the example of um, you know, please, Mister Taxman. Um, do you think that this is um, something that? doesn't just um, stay on the left. I'm, I'm thinking of the US presidential uh, election and Donald Trump's uh, complaints that, um, you know, that somehow it was rigged against him and somehow it was the, the, the vicious democratic establishment that have stolen the election from him. Do you think that as a um, myth that this is more applicable to both the left and the right than the others? Or do you think that, um, all of the myths uh, work both on the the, uh, the far left and, and the far right. Uh, that's an interesting question. I, I, I think ultimately, I think all all three of the myths that I I look at have a kind of almost perfect mirror image on the populist right. Mm. Um, so Trump clearly is absolutely someone who buys into uh, the, the the dark night idea of um, there being this kind of immoral, un-American group within mm. society who are kind of enemy within. Um, and his politics absolutely buys into the, the conspiracy theory mentality. If you watched his uh, his speech um, mm. late last night, it's quite extraordinary. But what he was really going in for was absolute, the kind of puppet master idea. I think that the some of the props are different, if you see what I mean. Yeah. It might be that he's blaming... Uh, a liberal elite, whereas the left is blaming a global elite, mm-hmm. um, or it might be that he's blaming a kind of the the liberal press, the liberal media, whereas we're blaming the blaming the left, blaming the right wing press. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's clearly a different sense of kind of what that elite looks like and and things like that. But but ultimately, I think I think that I think that both sides draw on this idea in very much the same way to suggest that there's there's this small group keeping their majority, you know, the, the popular will, the people down. Um, and I think that probably the only real difference is that the, the populist right are a bit better at it, if I'm, if I'm honest. It seems yeah. to be that, you know, the, it's the Trumps of this world or the, the Dominic Cummings of this world who are really able to, um, 
to squeeze political and electoral mileage out of the myth to a far greater extent than the, um, the populist left are. Mm. Um, so part of my argument in the book really is is arguing from a that even for, from the point of view of our own self-interest, we on the progressive side of politics need to reject these myths because they don't work apart from anything else. They're um, which is not as good at them. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the the third myth uh, that you deal with is um, the golden era. Now, what do you mean by the um, the golden era? Yeah, the gold the golden era is the third myth, and it's. Um, the one that's not, it's not in the, the title of the newly published book, just because I think it would be a little, little bit long. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's the idea of decline. It's the idea that there was a kind of um, original, original socialist moment, mm. an original socialist ideal or original socialist society that existed at some point in the past, which has gradually been corrupted by modernity. Mm. Um, so the at the moment the kind of the main idea is that you know it was the um, the the post-war years we, this new Jerusalem new Jerusalem was built by the um, the Atli governments mm. and then uh, and then slowly dismantled um, and we're kind of we're sort of driving towards this this right wing dystopia mm. um, so that's the the nub of the idea is it's this very a sense of everything going in the wrong direction. And it's not it's it's a myth which is not without truth in that yes, there has been very big um uh post in you know deindustrialization in parts of the country and and uh and things like this, but it it simplifies it down to this um this kind of almost quite nihilistic everything's getting worse. We mm. need to to have a you know we need to take drastic action, we need to do something extreme sort of um way of thinking um and you you reference the the athlete government there do you think that um since jeremy corbyn has um uh, left the leadership of uh, the labor party do you think that there is a shift with someone the the left to uh, project the new golden era as uh, his time as leader of the labor party with, with keir starmer you mean yeah 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 i think it's quite it's quite interesting i just uh was, was was reading um, Citizen Clem, John John Bue's uh, uh, biography of of Attlee. Um but it's striking quite how much it didn't feel like a golden era at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's yeah. kind of the point of the myth, in a way, is that it's all it it's very myopic. It's always it always kind of sees the past with rose tinted spectacles mm. and the present as this this bleak place. Um, so the, the the kind of formation of the the, the Attlee government was full of um, concessions and compromises, and and Attlee was actually a very kind of shrewd, flexible politician who was mm-hmm. kind of it didn't it didn't feel like these kind of unapologetic roar of socialism, which is now yeah. sort of remembered as. Um, so I think certainly I, I don't want to make any uh, hostages to fortune, but I certainly <laughs> think Keir Starmer's quite. He's got that kind of quite understated, I think, quite pluralistic way of doing things, and I think he's certainly much better equipped than um, uh, than someone like Corbyn was to stitch together a, a new social democratic moment, uh, a new a new moment of that kind mm. um, than than uh, than the populist left are. 
how do you think is the, the the best way that people can combat the the uh, the myth of the the golden era? Because in many ways, it is quite um, an inviting one to think of this, you know, sort of like wonderful uh, moment when everything was fine and we just have to try and get back to that. How do you think you can you can combat that and say, well, no, it's it's much more complicated than that. Yeah, it's it's that's a really hard one because I think that the the part of the reason that the golden era myth in particular carries so much traction um, is that it it appeals far beyond the Labour left. Mm. A lot of different people across society have their own sort of version of the the golden era. I was I was re- recently was reading. Um, uh, Deborah Mattinson's book Beyond the uh, Beyond the Red Wall, and it's really striking in there um, how strong in some of these Red Wall constituencies that she goes to this sense of loss and decline is, and that sense of loss and decline isn't without foundation in a place mm. like Stoke where it's lost the the potteries. Um, it's it's not it's not without basis, but mm. I think that the solution to the golden era is not to um, is not to kind of take the opposite approach to the golden era. It's not to say everything's getting better. Look at these statistics which show that life expectancy is longer than it was in the nineteen nineteen forties or nineteen fifties. But but rather to to just just to be realistic, really, about the changes that have happened from a mm. from a left wing perspective. The past seventy years has has given to us and taken away from us in some very different ways. It's been, you know, the, the country is much less um, less unionised. Uh, a lot, a lot of the kind of collectivist provisions are less pronounced. But it's also much, much more socially liberal, um, much more in, internationalist, and I think really an acknowledgement that you can't necessarily reverse all of those things. You can't cherry pick the bits you want. Mm. It's the really, the really important thing. But I think also the real, real solution is just having answers to the present day. How, how do we tackle um, global wealth inequality, uh, which is along with climate change probably one of the biggest challenges that that lies lies ahead of us. Um, the solution is not going to be through the, pulling the same national levers that coming out of the government were able to pull. So I think it's mm. finding the answers to the future is probably the, the biggest um, the biggest fix. Um, and we've obviously um, mentioned uh, Keir Starmer. And in the book, you, you talk about the um, almost fight uh, between uh, more pragmatic um, people in the Labour Party and um, uh, those more going to the, the, the populist side. Do you think that Starmer is much more on the uh, pragmatic side and do you think that the uh, policy agenda that he's beginning to put forward now like the the speech of the uh, CBI where he said that um, he wanted to be pro-business but he he still said that um, businesses had to to step up uh, to the plate do do you think that he is much more uh, pluralist and pragmatic than um, Corbyn was? Uh, Absolutely yeah I've I've actually been quite quite impressed with how good he how good he's been in terms of really understanding um the need to to reach out and really trying to break labor out of that 
quite narrow sectarianism that I think it had got allowed itself to become funneled into during the mm. past um, the past five years and perhaps even bef- before that. Uh, and partic- I think the thing that's particularly Im- impressive with him and why I think he probably um, offers a better chance than than a lot of people of actually scotching some of the golden era stuff is that his focus is on the the substance of the policies I think that can actually change this stuff mm. um, and he's not being drawn into the a lot of the culture war type stuff which is um, absolutely I think just toxic in terms of it uh, being dragged into the culture wars immediately means that you're taking sides on things that are actually quite trivial issues in the grand scheme of things like um, Winston Churchill's legacy or something mm-hmm. like that and yeah. in the process alienating huge parts of the electorate and, and Starmer hasn't fallen into that rabbit hole at all really from what I can see he's he's been determinedly focusing on the um, uh, to the policy substance and it's potentially quite quite dry in terms of he's not giving throwing red meat to his own mm-hmm. side in the way that, that Corbyn was or in the way that someone like Boris Johnson does on the other side of the spectrum mm-hmm. but he's um I think it's probably much more likely to to be able to come up with the right the right answers. Uh, we're coming towards uh, the end of the podcast. It's been great to speak to you, Chris, as uh, it always is. And I have uh, one final question for you. Um, we've just entered another uh, national lockdown in the UK uh, to the second of December, and possibly after that and of course that means you know we have to stay home and aren't able to do uh, the same amount of things uh, that we would have been able to do previously uh, so my question to you is what one thing are you most looking forward to being able to do either when uh, the lockdown ends or uh, when we get back to more of a, a semblance of uh, normality <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I've um, I've actually uh, just had a, a baby, a, a daughter, uh, who's um, seven weeks old. So, you know, you know, it's a, it's quite an unusual time, and in a way, it's a, it's quite a nice time to be able to spend the lockdown with um, <laughs> with with her and uh, and to be able to work from home and things like that. Um, so, I'm not. I'm, uh, th- that's a, a nice element of it, really. Mm. Um, I, I suppose the, the, on a completely basic day-to-day level, I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to, uh, to to play football again, which is something I've barely been able to do at all. I used to used to play five aside every week in, uh, in in East London, where I near where I live, and it's been that's been basically impossible for the great majority of this year. And it's um, just a quite a simple pleasure that you really appreciate when you're um, when you're kicked up in the house on a on a Wednesday night. Well, hopefully uh, you'll be able to get out and uh, play five-a-side um, soon. For people who would like to read the book, uh, where should they go to, to find copies of it? And if they want to find out more about yourself, where should they go? Uh, yep, the book is published by Penguin um, and is uh, available um, on uh, most online platforms, um, online bookselling platforms. Uh, and it's um, and there's also a, uh, a web my, my website for the book, which is um, uh, warringfictions.net. Um, goes by the old title of the book, Warring Fiction, but yeah, warringfictions.net. Um, it's got quite a lot of bits of um, media and and kind of blogs and things like that that I've I've written around it. 
Excellent. Well, thank you once again for coming on the podcast. I hope people, if they haven't already got a copy of the book, which they should do, uh, but if they haven't already, go out and uh, get a copy of it. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Brilliant. Thanks a lot for having me. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.